Uh, 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 here we go. AK-47, the very best there is. When you absolutely, positively got to kill every motherfucker in the room, except no substitutes. Hello and welcome to Moods and Tea. Uh, continuing our Quentin Tarantino season, we now arrive at Jackie Brown. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is my glamorous co-host, Miss Kim Lowe. Hello. Um, as we said, tonight we are going to be looking at Jackie Brown, probably one of the more diverse films in the Tarantino filmography, released in 1998 on Off the Heels of Pulp Fiction. This marked a real change in pace for Tarantino as it also was his first adaptation rather than an original screenplay, here adapting the Elmo Leonard uh, novel Rum Punch, um, while making several tweaks to the, the novel, including changing the lead character to a, being a black woman, mainly so he could cast Pam Greer in the role. Um, here finally managing to cast the black exploitation icon, having originally um, looked at casting her for the Rosanna Arquette role in Pulp Fiction. Here she's uh, finally casting a Tarantino movie front and center as the title of uh, hostess who finds herself caught in a money laundering scheme and uh, finds her loyalties divided between becoming an FBI informant or handing over her boss, here played by Samuel Jackson, in what ultimately becomes one big money hi- money swap heist. Kim, I mean, obviously this is a, as we said already, this is a change of pace. It's a very sort of straightforward story compared to our previous two uh, films, which really sort of messed around with the timeline, the narrative. Here we have just one story, and it's told from start to finish. There's no messing around, no fancy cuts, no weird cutaways or pop culture references. It's just a straightforward uh, crime thriller told from start to finish. Yeah, there is a little bit play with time in in a sense that, you know, like there are moments where, um, say when the swap is going down, they film it in like the time set and then the different people from their different points of views, right? And I think that's the the extent of how, (laughs) how much of the playing around in comparison to before. But yeah, it's fairly straightforward. I mean, we have like a few moments where it's like, oh, the split screen when they realize this side and that side, something (laughs) happened, you know, and it it pops in like here and there. And I think that in some ways, I think that this works. I think I, I mean, Jackie Brown definitely was, it's a first time watch for me. So I had no idea what I was getting into. I didn't read what it was about. (laughs) And I just, you know, kind of jumped into this rather long movie (laughs) which which surprisingly actually didn't feel too long because it just kind of kept moving and as you get caught up in this um whole scheme of what jackie brown wants to do you start thinking about you know which character like like which which uh which people is she playing right like um in the sense that you know like like how how is she is the scheme essentially for her to get a lot of money or is it that she wants us to mess with these people's heads um whether it's you know the bail bondsman um max cherry or whether it's um the atf cop uh uh, i think it was ray 
Yeah. Um, played by Michael Keaton, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, so so those are the two people that you don't really know. And then in, in, in between, you have all these other things that are going on, right? And is he... And you know, <laughs> in the whole movie, you start thinking about... Because it's brought up so often by um, uh, a, a bikini-clad <laughs> uh, kind of roommate <laughs> of Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> where, like, she keeps talking about how dumb... They, he is and <laughs> that you wonder whether she's going to be able to you know pull a fast one on him yeah i mean obviously here i mean we have probably one of the most stacked casts for a tarantino movie we've seen to date i mean not only do we have him doing the sort of revival casting with the likes of pam greer and robert foster we also have uh, the likes of bridget fonda michael keaton robert de niro chris tucker uh tiny lister sid haig it's just goes on and on this list, and it's. I, I know. Remember when it first came out? It felt because you know he'd done the revival thing with um, John Travolta's career that it felt like the, the, all these people were sort of like hopping on the bandwagon, hoping to get the same sort of revival for their career. I mean, obviously, when it comes to people like. Pam Greer, uh, she was already working at the time. She'd been working steadily, same as Robert Foster. I mean, their careers had taken a slight dip from, like, the late 70s when they'd moved from working mainly in TV, uh, sorry, mainly on film, to working on TV roles. So they were still working steadily. It's just they'd kind of fallen off the radar of most of the casting uh, directors at the time, and that's why... It was such a big thing to see these like classic actors just being brought back for this role, and everyone is just seems like so perfect or be or trying something new with their roles. I mean, the fact that we've got uh, Bridget Fonda here playing this sort of surfer chick who's sort of shacked up with uh, Samuel Jackson's Ordell, and if according to Emily Leonard, she's this kind of girl who just basically has. Since she was like 15, she's just constantly shacked up with guys just to pay her rent and to. So she never has to really work and she can just sort of sit around smoking pot and stuff. And she, as you're right, she is a bit of a, a smart ass. Um, but you just, it sort of fits in. Odell, you get the feeling it sort of fits in with his sort of lifestyle. He likes to have this hot chick in his apartment while he's doing his sort of gun selling spiel and. When we uh, actually open the film, it opens with that wonderful Chicks Who Love Guns video, which uh, he uses his sort of like sales to when he's like going through all the different uh, <laughs> guns that he's sort of selling to uh, Robert De Niro's Lewis, who's just recently got out of prison and for whatever reason is uh, now hanging out in Odell's um, apartment as he's being fed this spiel and. It's got this really great sort of Tarantino pattern to it, and you get like references to like things like. Cherry on Fats the Killer, and how everybody wants the handguns that uh, he has in that movie because, you know, they all want to be like the killer. And I just love, again, that idea of just criminals just wanting to emulate Hollywood tough guys is just, or in this case, Hong Kong tough guys, mm. is just uh, quite amusing to me, so. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really fits into what we were talking about, that every Tarantino movie starts up with something about pop culture, and in this case, in this case he's not only bringing up, you know... Um, hot chicks <laughs> selling guns <laughs> but also the fact that it it brings in you know what makes me really excited is someone bringing in um the hong kong flick and i i would i would assume they're talking about the action flick because that's what hong kong was known for in the 90s yeah um 
and bringing in all these things, talking about the guns and the action and all that stuff. And I mean, for me, it was really it was really nice to see that in there, you know, albeit really random. <laughs> but <laughs> that's how Tarantino movies have begun in the last two that we saw. And for this one, it really keeps going on. And I think in this movie, too, we start off, I think, in the first few scenes, probably having a lot of his trademarks show up more frequently than in previous movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly with uh, the opening. I mean, right from the start, we're introduced to Pam Greer as Jackie Brown, the air hostess. And she's just as still as cool as she was back when she was like at the height of her career back in like the 60s and 70s and doing like the exploitation pictures like Coffee and Foxy Brown and the big dollhouse and... Um, the big bird cage and she just has never lost her sort of beat and certainly for like black exploitation fans like myself i mean pam grit is like the queen she's very much as i was saying to you kim before we came on air tonight what michelle yo is to like hong kong action cinema pam grit is to black exploitation cinema and while there were certainly other black exploitation actresses out there she was sort of like very much like the top of the the pile and i think when you think of like the tough black chick in these sort of movies the girl who with a sort of shotgun and the fine afro and the, who's hiding like the switchblade and whatnot it's always like pound grew is like who you go to if you with your mind and i think because you especially if you're a fan of her work in those movies in particular it just plays in so well into this character i mean here she is obviously as an older actress and I think that was a little jarring to some fans who were hoping that she was going to be doing the coffee thing again, but instead she's playing this very sort of... This this older woman who's sort of caught up in this heist, uh, sort of like spontaneous heist to try to steal money from sort of her employer. So it's a very interesting plot twist, I think, the fact we're dealing with older actors rather than just the usual sort of like younger actresses and uh, actors that you would normally expect from this. And you can perhaps see with like an, if it was in the hands of another director that they would, you know, they would reduce the age of Jackie down to like a more marketable age rather than having her be um, a more mature character trying to remember like a case when we've had like a crime film where you obviously have two mature leads here we obviously have robert forrest uh robert foster and again i don't know if you're familiar with any of his films at all he definitely looks more familiar and i think probably i've seen him in some movies here and there but i don't like i can't really pinpoint him to anything specific okay um i mean his character in particular is actually in the weird logic of Tarantino, he's actually playing the same character he plays in Alligator, who was uh, this cop, and now in Tarantino's world, he's moved on in life, and now he's a Bales Bondman. Um, <laughs> don't ask me why Tarantino chose to move those characters on, but at the moment, he's um, currently writing a book where he's he's basically recasting films with Leonardo DiCaprio's character from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in the roles and it's like saying oh who would he play if he was like in grizzly and stuff so mm. when we come to, when we look at the tarantino worlds there's sort of like you have those very distinct worlds that his uh there's sort of three distinct worlds that tarantino movies take place in we've got the supposed real world which is like pulp fiction reservoir dogs and jackie brown we've got the movie world that those characters would the characters um uh, 
like if say Jules from Pulp Fiction went to see a film, the characters he would see are would be like characters in films like would be for Kill Bill and Death Proof, and then we've got his alternate histories, which is like uh, Inglorious Bastards and uh, Hateful Eight, Django Unchained, uh, those those movies, and obviously uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where basically in his logic that if these characters existed, these things could happen. Mm. So, yeah, a uh, <laughs> that apparently that was uh, the inspiration for the for Max Cherry, and I think Max Cherry is is really kind of interesting. The fact that he's kind of involved in this heist, but at the same time, trying walking this very sort of moral line of the film, he's sort of and he's tied between his sort of like own moral sort of preferences which I think he does really well he did that the same sort of line in um, Breaking Bad as where he played a very sort of similar character and at the same time he's absolutely besotted with Jack with uh, Jackie Brown and he finds himself because of uh, his his sort of like how he feels about this sort of drawn into this whole heist I think he'd rather have nothing to do with whatsoever so yeah for sure I mean I have to say that I think uh, Max Cherry's character is probably the one that I really like the most in the whole film because he's he's this very silent type of character. He kind of I think that's one of the most powerful roles here, and that's not you know this disregarding the fact that obviously Samuel L. Jackson is aw- awesome in his like wild you know long monologues and whatever um, that he does. Uh, those things work really well for him, but I think in terms of whether you talk about Max Cherry or even when you talk about the Louis Gara character by Robert De Niro, they're both characters who are very quiet, um, different in nature by all means. But I mean, Max Cherry is this person that <laughs> you kind of just have this like quick conversation with uh, when he first gets introduced, when he meets with um, Ordell and um, when he's going through all this. And even from the first moment that, you know, he, he sees uh, Jackie Brown and there's this like sudden, you know, <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's like this music starts going where it's like he's super infatuated with her. Um, I thought that scene was really great right from the, that moment. And he's this character where you kind of don't really know where he stands um, in many ways because you see him as this kind of normal guy. But he also is tough in his own ways. He has his own resources. And... Right from the start, you really wonder whether, because he seems like he's not a bad guy in general. Um, he has his own ethics and he has his own kind of, uh, you know, this is a business that he's running in the end. Um, and and then, you know, he knows what's going on with Ordell. He, he can see through the whole situation. And yet, and yet, you know, he's willing to go through all this uh, to see whether it works and see whether this is gonna, you know, plan out, because obviously he's not initially, from what you can gather, he's not initially convinced by the plan, but when he observes kind of the, the, what they call the trial run, they kind of, he kind of, he's like, you know, he has the simple thing, he's like, oh, this might work, this might work, type of thing. Yeah. It's... The fact that that once again we're faced with people who are not master criminals here, 
the fact that when Jackie goes off to do the heist, she's there does practicing a quick draw. Um, Robert De Niro's character gets arrested because he forgets where he parked his car when he went when he uh, carried out a bank heist. Again, these people are idiots, <laughs> but at the same time, they're somehow, somehow going to bundle their way through it. And like the the fact, I think Jackie. That's what makes Jackie so sort of special in the fact that yes, she's taking a chance on this whole on pulling off this bag swap, and at the same time, she's kind of like using the fact that everyone, a lot of these characters, are sort of caught up in their own bravado, bravado, like the the two cops are, um, who think that they have like full control over her. They think they've got her number down. Or Dell very much believes his own hype. Um, and the fact that, as I said, even his like girlfriend basically points out the fact that everything he spouts is like stuff he's heard from somewhere else. <laughs> um, but even, but at the same time, they've all got their own sort of like their own sort of like plans. Like Odell plans to like get his money. He's made his m- million, and now he plans to like retire. And a million's like hardly anything really uh, when you sort of think about it. But this is his um, his big plan. He's going to retire and. Because Jackie's been basically now screwed over twice by men. First time we obviously find out her airline pilot husband um, had a corp for when she was uh, smuggling drugs for him, and now it basically means that she the only airline she can work for is this sort of like low rent Mexican outfit. And now another man has basically screwed over because she's been caught in his money laundering scheme. So this is her chance to basically, you know break away and get uh, finally get paid because she's now taking the fall twice uh, for these men who are supposed to be sort of like looking after her, her interests so yeah I mean it, it definitely makes Jackie Brown's character more um, more in depth I guess because th- there's so much about Jackie Brown being especially because she's one of the few women characters in this whole gig you know that's yeah. always there and she's surrounded by these men who seem to all be bad in their own way or kind of, I guess, uh, good in their own world. And I think that's what makes you know, not only Jackie Brown being the smart lady that she is and being able to you know, notice all these things that she can use to her advantage, all these people that she can use to her advantage and the situation to take that chance, but... Also, you know, going back to Max Cherry for a second, it also makes Max Cherry stand out because he's not kind of part of these sketchy men <laughs> that's around her. <laughs> you know, <laughs> even even the cops. You know, you think about the cops, and you're you, you know the first thing when they find the the drugs and her money is you think whether they planted it, and then later on they refer to where it came from, obviously. But these characters coming in, they, they're kind of playing a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, they're trying to kind of play the good cop, bad cop routine and then think yeah. they're, they have the whole control of the situation and, and all that stuff. And, <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I, saw, I don't watch Michael Keaton a lot, but when, I'm, I, when I watch Michael Keaton, I remember why he's such a great actor. <laughs> <laughs> he's hard to place. Because he's 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 got such a range to him, he's got that sort of like um, goofy, laid back sort of comedy side, and then he's got this really sort of intense side to him as well, where he's like almost this like Jack Nixon grinning maniac, which we've seen in the likes of The Founder, we've seen it in Need for Speed, more than randomly, uh, we saw it in the in um, Spider Man Homecoming as well. Where he was just intimidating as all hell as uh, the vulture, 
Another character. I mean, as I said, the Vulture's a stupid character. He's like Mysterio, yet these two Spider-Man movies are taking two of the most difficult villains and somehow made them really great. And I think that a lot of that is down to how Keaton portrayed that character. It was just so fantastic. Um, I think it really sort of laid the foundation there. But here, I mean, here he's kind of like the... I don't, I don't know how to place Ray because he's kind of like trying to be the good cop. Um, and at the same time, he's sort of like, he follows his partner's lead, who's again got too much of that tough guy bravado on to really sort of see what's happening right in front of them. Um, and the fact that the character of Ray appears in, um, in Out of Sight as well, also played by Michael Keaton, is a nice bit of a crossover there. Mm. Um, But I think the thing also I like about Jackie Brown is the fact that she's not the damsel in distress. Like yes. when Odell comes to her apartment and he's trying to intimidate her. And he's like, is that a gun against my dick? And she realized, no, she isn't. She isn't a wilting flower. She's fully capable of handling herself. Um, and that scene when they were shooting it, like where he's supposed to have his hands around his neck. Um, Samuel Jackson being like such a fan of like uh, exploitation cinema and certainly of Pam Grier's work was sort of like he's sort of like I can't can't strangle strangle coffee. <laughs> it's like what do you expect me to do? And it's this seems to be this reoccurring theme within Pam Grier's career where she has like the young coast like when she's doing working with Snoop Dogg and Bones or when she had to uh, kiss Will Smith on the Fresh Prince of Bel Air and stuff and you get these on set reports of like how they just became like these giggling schoolboys <laughs> and they're just all embarrassed which I think is just kind of charming but the the fact that she it's it's fun in the fact that if you're a fan of her work, the fact that you could see her almost as these sort of like characters sort of like further along, kind of like uh, when you look at Clint Eastwood's character in Gran Torino, um, how if you're like a fan of like the Dirty Harry movies and stuff, and you now look look at his character, there, it's sort of like, oh, this is what happened if like Dirty Harry had like retired and moved to the suburbs. Um, it's very easy to see like the evolution of the character, and I think it's very much the same with Jackie Brown. The fact that you could see her going from being like this badass chick when she was like, as she said, when she made those movies, when she was like full of piss and vinegar, and then she's comes, she's now a more mature actress, and she's still got that edge to her, which um, they use really subtly here, which I thought was really great. And I think the when I saw this film when it first came out, I saw it I think too young and I think it's one of those movies that the older you get you appreciate it more and I think mm. the fact it's got mature leads I think also um, yeah. you appreciate uh, and you feel sort of like less, o- less old and yeah. just watching these young whippersnappers I, you know, I have to say, I think that Tarantino definitely, I think right from the first movie, Reservoir Dogs, and, and when I rewatched Pulp Fiction, I already said that, like, I feel like Tarantino movies is really, um, you appreciate them a lot more. The more you know about cinema, you appreciate them more, and also yeah. the older you get. And if you think about it, and even when I think um, backwards, or, you know, even in the movies coming up, a lot of Tarantino's movies is focused on a more mature cast, which is, you know, not the case in a lot of the directors that we've looked at, which has more of like a wide range. You know, they've some people explore, you know, teenage uh, teenage uh, movies or, or other type of movies. And I think maybe barring maybe Ang Lee, which was more on the mature side of movies as well. Um, but. I think, you know, Tarantino really, in this sense, I think the the storytelling is really different um, because 
in, in at least in the movies I watched, Tarantino's movies that we're watching right now is kind of a whole different pacing. Because <laughs> it's not like, you know, it has its light and fluffy moments. Because, you know, in between of all of this crime and thriller and stuff, there is a bit of, you know, comedic moments. And there and in this one, I think it, it is even more, I can't pinpoint some exact ones because I have goldfish memory but uh, <laughs> but there are so many like one-liners that they talk about and like sudden moments and you know little surprises that that kind of like have the, that kind of shock value or you know that kind of like laugh out loud one-liner type of deal and it really highlights how clever of a writer Tarantino really is um I know I talked about it in you know Pulp Fiction before but I think for Jackie Brown it even steps it up a lot more because even though it's not you know his script or anything um but he he I think even though you know this is a is adapted by uh, an adaptation yeah the the script is still written by him I believe the the script is still credited fully to him as the adapted screenplay yeah, he's um, it's as I said, he adapted the from the book. Um, yeah. Owen Owen Leonard um, wrote wrote the book Rum Punch, um, and Tarantino basically just took the just that that story and made some tweets. I mean, Owen Leonard himself said, you know, he looked at the what Tarantino tweaked in it, and he was like, you know, that makes perfect sense. It's sort of like, yes, I could see Pam Grier playing this role. I can understand. Because in the book, I mean, she's a white man. The character Jackie Brown is, and he changed it because he, when he was reading it, he saw like Pam Grier in this role, and he was sort of like, you know, I'm just gonna change this character. And again, Elmer Lerner was like completely up there, and he also um, credited Bridget Fonda as being absolutely spot on casting for the uh, role of Melanie. Yeah, he, he was like, does he? It's like that's just absolutely perfect. It's like how I envision this character to be. You know, it's crazy because I, when I think about Bridget Fonda, it's the same situation as all these, a lot of these other characters that I, I know her by name, but I don't ever remember where <laughs> I've seen her from. And then I'm like, oh wait, yeah. And then I look at her IMDb and then it's like, oh, hey, she was on Lake Placid. I remember that character. And then, you know, you go back and you think about the different roles that she's been in and, and yeah, it's, it's just really hard to, you know, it just doesn't occur to me right away. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, with this um, script as well. I mean, this is probably features the least amount of quotable dialogue from a Tarantino movie. And I think because it's an adaptation, which certainly when it came out, I think a lot of people were very critical of because they liked having the idea of having a new film come out so they'd have a new bunch of witty quotes to drop in when they're hanging out with their friends and whatnot. And instead, we have a film which is, as I say, it's more of a sort of traditional sort of crime thriller. It's doesn't have many of those um, flares that uh, we come to expect from a Tarantino movie, even though a lot of the shots are certainly there, like the shot inside the trunk, which we obviously see when we've got um, Chris Tucker, <laughs> who um, has a really great cameo. Um, yeah, 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 no, I mean, especially with that whole, um, that whole, like, going into the trunk situation. <laughs> that was great. That was really, really fun. And then on top of that, they had that whole camera play where the car is just like from one side and then the camera pans <laughs> over to the next side. <laughs> and it was, I, I, you know, it's these little like little moments, I think, that really make the movie um, so fun because everybody has their own little scheme and everybody thinks they're so smart and, and whatever. And yeah these little moments happen and then you know we finish the movie and 
and I was thinking to myself, uh, well, we were we were having a discussion, and we were we were saying like uh, me and the husband, and we were, we were saying like <laughs> Ordell's character kills so many people, and yet no one ever notices or hears them. <laughs> <laughs> it's it is true, um, and I like the fact with Chris Tucker. I mean, it's not him doing his usual sort of five hundred words per second style yeah. performance. He's not like Fifth Element or Money Talks. These sort of like any Murphy fast uh, talking sort of roles. It's just him. He, he approached Santino and they got talking. And he basically came on and wanted to just do a piece as an actor, and that's what what he did. And suddenly everyone was like, was just thought he did a really sort of fantastic job. And this sort of like brief cameo he puts in. And I think while it's a small role, it's certainly one that he just like really knocks at the party. He's so memorable in the role, even though he's briefly in it and i think yeah. it, the fact that you know who chris tucker is makes the briefness of his role just all the more impactful yeah than if they just cast some like you know bit actor in the in the part i also have to say that with this uh we obviously mentioned about Odell's um quick appearance in this film the moments of violence we have in this film are actually kind of shocking when they happened um, and there's no real like long variance. We just have these sudden flashes of violence, like when Melanie gets shot in the car park. And it's just like a <laughs> sort of moment of rage. It's like, like oh, is she actually gone now from this movie? <laughs> I thought that was that moment was timed so well too, because when you're, when you're thinking about it, you didn't, you know, the whole movie. Robert De Niro's character, right, Louis Lewis, is like super just quiet, single words, not a lot yeah. of things that he's saying, and then you just have this like built up anger inside of him that you know he has this kind of anger in him that suddenly he just can't handle it anymore and then he he's like this very impulsive character right he he acts um really based on his own feelings um whether it is you know like the whole um the whole like you know having having sex with melanie or something uh suddenly again that was, came out of nowhere as well yeah that it? came out of nowhere and then and then after that he would fess up about it and he would be, but he, you know, in some ways, Lewis is also this very, very, um, interesting character because he would not only talk about, uh, you know, he would not only do things that is not good, but he'll also <laughs> fess up to it afterwards to Ordell, whether good <laughs> or bad, regardless of the results. I don't know if you credit that to him being dumb or being honest, or <laughs> I don't know what you want to call that. Um, but I think that, you know, that makes his character so crazy. And when you think about that scene where he suddenly just turns around and just 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 shoots Melanie, I think that was such a shocking moment. I think that was like a perfect moment where, you know, the whole order is disrupted. You think things are okay and whatever, and, and then suddenly, you know, you turn around and something changes. Oh, yeah. And the fact is, it's even shocking to Adele when he, like, confesses to her. And he's sort of like, what do you mean you shot her? It's like you slap her, you don't shoot her, which gets <laughs> questionable behavior to begin with. But still, <laughs> and I love the fact that that Odell even like even like confesses when he like says to her the fact that he, that, uh, he had sex with Melanie and and that, and he's sort of like, I I totally should have expected it. Of course, he never throws any my way, but still. <laughs> so it's sort of like he knows what she's like, and that somehow they they've accepted. He's accepted, um, you know. This is this is how their relationship works. She's just a pain in the ass, but she's she's good to have around because she impresses his clients. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. Something that is uh, memorable, even if the dialogue isn't soundtrack um, oh, yeah. for this film. A lot of really cool stuff on here. Um, I think this is the one Delphonic song I think most everybody knows thanks to this movie. Oh, yeah. No, I, I mean, I this is the first time watching this movie, right, for me. Yeah. And, I mean, absolutely love the, the Delphonics. I never listened to Delphonics before. It sounds no? familiar, though. But <laughs> it sounds familiar, but I'm really bad with, like, um, a lot of songs in general, so... Um, but I mean, this was really, really, really good. And, and especially when it always like cues up when we're, we're talking, it's almost like a Jackie Brown theme, right? So it really fits with, with the whole scenario whenever it shows up. And even when you talk about the other soundtrack, uh, the other sound, the other songs on the soundtrack is, it's still really, really like paired really well with the scenes. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, from like from the opening when we've got Bobby Womack's uh, "Cross 110th Street," which is also uh, the title song of the film, the same name. Um, as we've said already, you got the Delphonics uh, "Didn't I Blow Your Mind," which is just a perfect courtship song when she's, you know, uh, Max Cherry's in her apartment and sort of like she's she's putting on the music and he's sort of like, "Oh, what's this?" And it's like, "Oh, this is the Delphonics." And then you see him; he goes to the record store and he buys the cassette. <laughs> and it becomes this reoccurring theme, like when he's uh, he has it in his car, and um, Odell like currency is all like, "Oh, the Delphonics." <laughs> so uh, yeah, they certainly certainly got the money's worth out of that track first off. We also get Johnny uh, Cash's Tennessee Stud. <laughs> well, I think that one was the weirdest one that that showed up. Because my husband made a point. He was like, Johnny Cash going with this, this like this scene felt really weird. Um, yeah. Because it, it just didn't seem to match like the characters that was, you know, in play. Uh, we also get Grassroots Midnight Confession, Bill Weathers, Who Is He? It's a really funky soundtrack. Obviously, it's got a real sort of slant towards Black Floyd's side tale, hence why we've got things like Bobby Womack on there. Um, the fact that we didn't have, like, um, any Isaac Hayes or we have some little James Brown on there would have uh, sort of really, really sort of nailed it home. So I suppose we should... Uh, we should give Tarantino some credit, although he does obviously use a Royer's funk score from Coffee uh, in the film as well, which is kind of kind of uh cool um yeah i'm just um i would really enjoy it. again it's a really underrated soundtrack uh, when it came to like the, when the soundtracks like came out i mean everyone had the pulp fiction soundtrack which is really awkward to like play uh because it's got all these sort of sound clips from like the film <laughs> so you have like uh, all this like effing and blind and stuff so, so we had to like when we uh played it when i was working in like in the pool we'd have it on i had to make like copy it off and like edit out all the sweary bits <laughs> <laughs> just so that we had a copy we could play in the pool because everyone liked the soundtrack but they just obviously couldn't have like tarantino like doing the zico 2917 speech when yeah in the middle of trying lifeguard because it's always when you can't get to the stereo to kick it onto the next track Speaking, obviously, of uh, Reservoir Dogs, so Robert Forrester was originally going to play the Lawrence Tierney role in um, Reservoir Dogs. Oh, really? Yeah, he was mm-hmm. uh, he was in the running for that that role, which I think would have been kind of interesting. Would kind of would have made him like a Doc in Baby Driver. Yeah, that's where I could see it, it playing out. But that would be really cool to see Harvey Keitel and Robert Forrester in the same scene. But <laughs> instead, uh, instead we got Lawrence Tierney, who's who's again his own. Sp- his own special brand of chaos that he is. Absolutely, yeah. 
And you know, when you know, thinking I was just thinking about like you know, you know how the music kind of randomly shows up. Another thing really random about <laughs> and I thought was very very oddly timed is yep. all those feet shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know how, it's like, well, a Tarantino movie like with shots of like feet. A Tarantino type of trademark, but yeah. they show up in such weird places. You know? It's uh, yes, especially think... when you come to when you especially when you talk about like the Melanie character. A lot yeah. of her shots are her legs and her feet. <laughs> Can I just point out nobody ever picked up on Tarantino's obsession with feet till Death Proof, and I think at that point he was like so blatant. With his feats like voyeurism, um, but you yeah, know the, the feet shots are always there. I mean, we see it in like Pulp Fiction. Obviously, there's no feature on Reservoir Dogs because nobody wants to look at men's feet. <laughs> Go and see Harvey Cattell's like big stumpy feet. Yeah, I'm sure that'd do wonders for you. <laughs> it's like, oh look, it's Tim Roth's bloody toe. No, no, it's not going to do anything for you. Uh, but no, obviously, Pulp Fiction, we consume Furman's feet when she's introduced. I mean, let's not forget, introduce feet first. We yes. don't get to see her, so they go to the restaurant. All we see is her feet. Yeah. And she's barefoot for no apparent reason. <laughs> she's like me, doesn't always leave in the house and just late to put the shoes on, so. <laughs> um, and obviously, in this one, Melanie's feet are the subject to much focus. Right from, I think it's pretty early on as well that. That he gets his uh, feet gratuity in. Oh yeah, it was right from the beginning. Before we even saw her face, we saw her feet. <laughs> yeah, once you uh, once someone points out, as I say, once someone point, it became apparent his obsession with with uh, feet. It still becomes a lot clearer when you go back. You sort of notice it a lot more than you probably did the first time around. But, but... I, you know, it'd be really hard to not notice it because, like. And on top of that, you know, these are some glamorous feet that she has. You know, she has all these, like, rings on her toes and stuff. And it's just like... So, it's very hard. Like, I mean, because mostly, you know, like I said, I don't watch movies where, you know, there's that much up close and personal with your feet, right? Yeah, sure. You have a person's bare foot in in, 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 in a movie or something. But it's not, like, up close onto their feet a lot of times. And with, with Tarantino, like, it's really in your face. Um... Even, you know, the way that he chooses, it's a, it's very, like, I, I don't want to say, like, back in the days, I guess it didn't really matter as much. Now, probably people would be more, you know, uh, iffy about it. But it's it's the fact that, you know, Tarantino, when you watch him film movies, and especially with this one, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, like, you know, women in bikinis and stuff like that, whether it's <laughs> movies or stuff, whether it's, like, the, 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 the women introducing the guns or, or whatever. <laughs> you have this whole seduction value of every single woman. Every single woman is placed in a way where they're in a very seductive type of role. Whether yeah. it's just, you know, Melanie sitting on the couch uh, smoking pot. She has her legs crossed in a certain way. And when he films it and he's fil- filming uh, Lewis, he films it, you know, as him. And then her, her legs are right in front of him type of thing. <laughs> And even when you see, like, uh, the little, you know, the, the the moments of when Jackie Brown is coming out, obviously she's she's walking, 
uh, in the dark, kind of, like, dimly lit area, and she she's very, like, you know, I feel like she walked in a very, like, seductive type of way, but I think it has also to do with the fact that the music was playing, and then, you know, you have Max <laughs> Cherry all mesmerized, staring at her. It's, <laughs> it's so funny when you mention that one shot, because obviously if you're, if you're a fan of Pam Greer, he shoots it in such a way, I mean, obviously if you're not familiar with her work, you see it from, like, the Max Cherry perspective where he's seen her for the first time, and if you're like a, a fanboy of like a, of a Pangria and you see it, it's sort of like you're seeing her and she's coming towards you. Yeah. It's very much like no one else is, <laughs> is in the scene at all. It's just you seeing this vision of like Pangria. She's like um, almost Steph in, um, in um, Lawrence Arabia. It's sort of like this mirage that suddenly comes to life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I really like the scene. I love the fact as well that the, as she goes on, she becomes more glamorous. When she's introduced, she's sort of like just, you know, she's just working the job. She's trying to get by, as the song mm. says. Um, that was a really good use of the soundtrack, especially. And as she becomes more sure of herself, as, she, as the plan starts to come together, to the point that by the, the end of the film, and she's uh, like driving off and she's mouthing the... Um, Marvin along the to the hundred and tenth street and she's like full on like she's like a hundred percent herself, you know, she's this she's this restored woman almost. Um and we as I said when we see her, she's at her lowest, so she's very sort of her makeup's sort of very sort of bland and it's very downplayed, even though she does still look look stunning. Um but yeah, she becomes more glamorous as uh, she becomes more of a restored woman by the end of the film. Um, another fun fact as well uh, Pam Greer was originally going to play Judy in uh, Pulp Fiction who was the Rosanna Arquette role um, again she wasn't cast in the role because no one believed that Eric Stoltz would tell her tell Pam Greer to shut up <laughs> so instead he went to Rosanna Arquette um, but yeah I think that uh, just uh, you mentioned over to you about the girls who who did guns. If you buy the DVD, you can watch the whole video. It's one of the bonus features. <laughs> it's as random as it is in the film, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's got a real sort of like uh, sort of real sort of nineties charm to that one for sure. Mm. Uh, it's also really interesting as well that. When we go to the record shop, that's the only time we really sort of snap to modern day, it feels like. The rest of the film, it feels like we're very much like in a sort of like late 70s, early 80s style film. And then we go to the record store and they're like playing the modern like R&B track as he's, and they're selling CDs. And it's like George, it's like, oh, wait, we're actually in modern times. We're not actually in the 70s. <laughs> it was, um, was kind of a trip. Um also, if you're for exploitation fans, Sid Haig turns up as the judge, which is just amusing because every other time he, he was like in films, which is always like the fog. Often opposite Pam Greer because he was like one of uh, Jack Hill's regulars along with Pam Greer. So the fact that when they first saw each other was filming that scene and they both turned to each other and it's like, what are you doing here? Obviously, if you like this film, I mean, obviously go back and check out the Pam Greer. Um, filmography. There's lots of really great stuff in there. Also, the same for Robert Forrester's uh, filmography. Definitely go and check back at those uh, those movies, especially in the 90s, like six and seventies, and like watch things like Alligator. 
um, and his uh, sort of crime movies from like the late sixties are really good. But for Pam Grier, I mean, you just watch things like Coffee and Foxy Brown, Black Mama, White Mama, uh, Big Dollhouse, any of the like the Jack Hill movies that she made would would um, really sort of sort of forever make help you understand why she is sort of this icon that she is. But no, I think uh, she really sort of knocks out of the park, and I think. It's a shame that uh, she's not had a chance to do anything else really with Tarantino outside of this. And when it was coming up to like the awards season and when they were like doing the awards, I mean, the Screen Actors Guild and the Golden Globes were both like giving nominations to Samuel Jackson and Pam Greer. And he really hoped that she would get a nomination for Best Actress. And because his hope being that the first black actress to win the Best Actress Award would be Pam Greer, but unfortunately we would have to wait a few more years and uh, it would be Halle Berry from Monsters Ball who would finally get that honour. Mm. Uh, Robert uh, Forrester, while being ignored by the Screen Actors Guild and Golden Globes, however, did pick up a nomination for Best Supporting Actor. So, I don't know, it would have been nice to see Pam Greer get the Oscar. I mean, do you think this is an Oscar performance? I think it's good. I mean... I don't know if it's Oscar. I th- I think it's I think that you know it is uh, so far in terms of you know Tarantino movies it is it is pretty good, um, but I I sometimes wonder whether I like the movie because because of like just I liked it for a lot of things, but then I also yeah. see some of the parts of it where I'm not sure if if it is you know I have no comparison. That's a problem. Like. I haven't watched anything else of Pam Greer. This is like my first movie that I've seen. And and you know, I think I think the better question is seen since you know a lot more of her filmography, is this considered a you know, do you think this is a Oscar worthy type of performance? As much as it pains me, no. Um, <laughs> I would would say I mean uh, certainly from a career aspect, I mean certainly she's well deserving of an Oscar for her contributions to cinema, especially in terms of leading, leading ladies. I mean, what she's obviously done over the course of her career, I think she's well deserving of an Oscar. I don't think that, but again, it's often when you look at like the roles where someone finally gets the Oscar, Mm. like Denzel Washington for training day. And you think, well, he's done other roles, which are better than this. I mean, he should have obviously got it for Malcolm X. If we're talking about like an Oscar winning role for Denzel and, Instead, um, it's for Training Day, which is a good movie. But again, and yes, he's very good in that movie. But was it an Oscar-winning performance? I think this is this is the the problem. Is like sometimes they give them the uh, like the Oscar. Like Scorsese got an Oscar for The Departed, but it's yeah. uh, by far not his best film. And I think Pat was sort of jaded because we both really love Inferno Affairs. Yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, the fact that Anthony Wong is not cast in any way, shape, or form in The Departed means you're already at a detriment. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, but I mean, <laughs> I can't talk about Anthony Wong recently because I just no? I just rewatched The Untold Story. Like, <laughs> so I I you know it's it's hard to think about him as like category three actor who is like a maniac <laughs> psycho killer. <laughs> chopping things up chopping people up and and you know and then all of a sudden we're, we're talking about how such a fantastic career he's had and it's oh yeah those, the f- you know it's one of those 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 actors that you don't remember where they came from and then when you remember that this is the role that kicked off his career it's it's almost ridiculous to think about it you know it's almost oh, yeah. unbelievable 
it was so funny because Anthony Wong, like the whole of his career, is just like playing villains and psychos, as you said. And then he finally gets to be like a good cop in Infernal Affairs. And what happens? He gets thrown off a roof. It's like, <laughs> look where it got him. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't getting thrown off a roof in any other movie, that's for sure. <laughs> like when he's a dirty cop in Beast Cops, I mean, he gets beaten up, but he makes it to the end credits. So, uh, but uh, yes. Season six, join us where we do Pam Greer, all the films. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be pretty awesome. I I don't know if you'd you'd want to sort of hang out with me after that season, Kim. But uh, no, for myself, that would be awesome. Maybe we'll, we'll work it in. So our... It's definitely something we can talk about for sure. Well, we might work some in some Pam Greer movies into our after hours season. So we're um, rather than doing Shark Shark Week, we'll just do Pam Greer Week instead. <laughs> we need to we need to recharge those shark films first. <laughs> well, yes, I mean it's it's worrying when we look at what's left in the uh, in the basket for the Shark Week movies. It's only downhill. Yeah, Jack Brown. It's uh, it's not my favorite Tarantino movie by far. I feel that it's a movie that rewards repeat viewings. Because first time you watch it, you're trying to keep up with the plot, and especially when you've got a money swap uh, plot, it's a little hard to sort of appreciate. Or, and when you rewatch it, you get to appreciate those slow moments, those hangout moments, as uh, Tarantino likes to call them. Um, and by far, I mean Samuel Jackson in particular is just absolutely nails it out of the park. Even if his, uh, I don't know what you call that beard, but it's really distracting. <laughs> I actually thought it was pretty unique in a in, in the sense of like his appearance, um, but it was very like show stealing. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> he spent a lot of time looking at it. <laughs> yes, yeah, so Samuel Jackson and his facial hair. Um, but no, um, it's I think it's one that's worth worth revisiting. I'm certainly I wouldn't say it's in my sort of like my top uh, top five for the Tarantino movies. So. I don't know. I mean, we're only three movies in. It's really hard to make my top five right now. <laughs> but oh. I really, I, I'm, but for me right now, Jackie Brown is definitely in running for like a hidden gem. I really feel like people don't talk about it as much, but then maybe it's just because, I don't know. <laughs> it's just because I don't, I've never heard of it. Like I, I've never heard people talk about it much. Um, I think it's because I think a lot of people, they saw it when it came out and because it was, it was so different than a lot of his other films. I think they sort of, dismissed it and never sort of returned to it and then then you got other people who sort of like come to it like yourself later in life and just like really sort of appreciate it for what it is so yeah but um yeah it definitely is one that's this that gets better with age but um that's on that note it does bring us into tonight's episode thank you as always for listening if you haven't done already please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening to us and maybe leave us a review as it all helps raise the profile of the show you can find follow us both on Facebook and we're on Instagram and um, you can also check out our blog which is moves and tea podcast at wordpress.com and uh, on there as well every Friday we post our Friday film club where myself and Kim both take both pick a film to highlight um, sometimes the theme sometimes there's not either way it's a chance for us to highlight some more of the movies that we think you should check out uh, but um, Kim, where are we going to next? We're going to um, a very popular film, I think, in Tarantino's um, uh, 
filmography, and that would be Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 together. Oh, yes. <laughs> if we're talking about top-tier Tarantino, this is going to be the one. <laughs> Um, and it's yes, a really I've... great lead up because, you know, Jackie Brown talks about um, Hong Kong films and then Kill Bill is very like Asian oriented and does have some, uh, well, has one or one or two uh, Hong Kong or Hong Kong actors as well. So, yeah, we get to uh, see Tarantino work with the two legends in both uh, Gordon Liu and Sonny Chiba. So that's going to be really exciting to talk and I will apologize in advance for how much I'm going to geek out on that one. But uh, that's obviously to uh, come on our next episode. So um, to them, thank you for listening. Thank you to my co-host, Kim. And we'll be back next time to talk about Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2. Good night. Girl